This morning, I want to introduce our speaker. And uh, Rick Richardson has been a friend of New Community uh, from the beginning. He's been here before, although maybe not in this room. He's been in our congregation before. I can't say whether he's been in this room. Uh, But he's been with us before, and he is back uh, to preach and uh, to minister to us. Some of you know him as an author and a writer. Some of you may know him uh, as a teacher. He is a professor at Wheaton. He is, has been in campus ministry for uh, quite, a, quite a time uh, as an associate evangelist with InterVarsity. He's also an Anglican priest. Um, and it's out of those experiences, along with a lover of fantasy literature and fly fishing and hiking, that, uh, that he comes to us today. Uh, and we are glad uh, that he's back uh, to, to minister to us. You will probably hear his passions. You will probably hear the abiding streams out of which God has kind of uh, drawn him in and drawn him along. Prayer is a primary way I have come to know him and to listen to him, uh, but, but the gospel and the ministry of racial reconciliation and talking to uh, people, I think, of many generations, um, but of particular and special emphasis maybe to folks who are coming along these days. And you can, you can take that however you want. Uh, and I say it so you can take it however you want. But he has something to say uh, for us. And I'm thankful and I want you, uh, as you listen to him, to be open to the gratitude that's happening and how God is using him to speak to you and to talk to us today. Uh, I'm going to pray for him and I'm going to invite you to pray with me as I pray for him. And then uh, if you'll come, Rick. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful communicator, for always uh, getting your point across. It is never you who communicates poorly. So, Lord, help us to listen. And to be open to what you open to us. Help us to hear, not just with our ears and our intellects, but with our souls and with our hearts. With these bodies that you've blessed us with. Give us the mercy to take in all that you have for us over these moments. Bless Rick today. That as he ministers, uh, he would sense and feel and know that you are ministering to him. That, that his ministry is not only outward, but that he ministers as a, as, a, as a receptacle of grace today. Thank you for the good news of God, for the people of God. Thank you for the part of that news that he will proclaim. Bless him for having been with us. Make it so he does not walk away depleted, but whole. And make the same true for us. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. There I am. Ooh, I think that's going to be too loud. I'm going to blow people out. You know, Michael is a wonderful contrast to Peter, isn't he? Pastor Peter. Wow. Thank you so much for that moment of quiet and just listening to God like that. I wasn't commenting on Pastor Peter there about the moment of quiet, but that moment of quiet and had a sense of God coming close and... Loved that. I listened to God for a little bit, and then I listened to the babies. That was really fun. Uh, So cute. And I love being in a place where God brings people together across lots of different ethnic groups and uh, backgrounds and a lot of differences. Uh, I used to lead concerts of prayer in Chicago and had a kind of a fun experience uh, bringing a bunch of people together to pray across lots of different uh, differences. We brought some churches back together to pray that had split. Uh, during, uh, you know, we had about, I don't know, a thousand people together in Moody Church downtown. And uh, had black and Latino and Asian and Native American and Anglo and had Nigerians and uh, Koreans and just a whole mix of uh, people and had a gospel choir sing and we'd said as we came into this concert of prayer, hey, we're going to focus on our similarities and what we have in common. We're not going to emphasize our differences. Um, you know, unity is not uniformity. Uh, unity is the, is the harmony God makes when he brings diversity together. And creates a bigger symphony, creates a bigger sense of what God is orchestrating in the world. And that, and that is what's here. It's just so fun to be here. And I'll never forget that night as we went through this concert of prayer. We opened in the Hausa language and, and we had a gospel choir. And we just were having so such a powerful time in unity in God's presence. And uh, one of our, we, we'd actually said, I had a Pentecostal brother. Pentecostal is kind of the wing of the church where uh, they um, emphasize God's power and love to speak in tongues and lots of other kinds of things. And, uh, and we'd said, we're not going to do the things we don't share in common. And we'd said, like, for instance, we're not going to speak in tongues tonight just because some people get that, some people don't. And so my brother was leading worship and got so excited, he just started singing in tongues, singing in other languages. Hey, whoo, here we go. I love that. Keep it coming, man. (laughs) So, and I thought, this is Moody Church, and they're not really into that kind of thing. And I thought, oh, man, from the stage of Moody Church, this whole thing is going down in flames. Every time we try to bring together unity, we just hurt each other, drive each other further apart. So I was so concerned for the rest of the service. I came up after to shake the hand of the head pastor, uh, Erwin Lutzer, who uh, has retired now, although he still spends time at Moody Church. But uh, 
He, uh, I shook his hand and I was just about to launch into an apology because I was the guy who was, or, you know, kind of leading, leading the thing. And I, I was about to say, I'm so sorry that happened. I, his elders were sitting in the back row. I said, I hope your elders don't fire you. I mean, I, I was about to say all that. And he came up to me. He shook my he, hand. He said, that was fantastic. My favorite part was when our brother kind of sang out in Spanish. I, to this day, I have no idea if God translated tongues into Spanish for Erwin Lutzer or was just playing with me and, you know, translated Spanish into tongues. But I got the sense that night, man, God just loves when his people come together like this. He loves it. And he protects it. And he nurtures it and he uses it to say something to the whole world and not just the world, but even spiritual uh, powers. It just, it, it preaches. So I love being here today. My message is, I get to talk about the evangelism word. How do you feel when you hear that word? <laughs> Okay, there's one person that clapped. <laughs> so, I think what often happens for us, it's, it's very ironic. You know what the word evangelism means? It's euangelion in the Greek, good news. And euangelizai, sharing good news. So you would think a word that means good news would give us good feelings. But I often find when I'm with people that it can give us guilt or a sense of we've fallen short or that's something we're supposed to do and don't or that's something that I don't want anybody to do to me and I don't really want to do to anybody else. We get these other associations. And I think sometimes we so script what it ought to look like and we reduce it that it basically involves convincing people how bad they are so we can let them know how much God loves them and forgives them. And that becomes the whole of the message. And then we think, until I convince them how bad they are, I don't even have good news for them. And we can kind of get shut down. But, but actually, gospel, evangelism, witness, uh, the way Jesus practiced them, they were really, really good news. And they were, they were certainly about forgiveness. doesn't matter what you've done. God accepts you and welcomes you and restores you and embraces you. That's good news. But it's also so much bigger than that. It's, it's about life. It's about that Jesus is alive, that God is alive, that God is so active in our lives, in our world, and wants to give us life and lift off the stuff that drags us down and that traps us and wants us to set us free to be who we're meant to be and make the difference in the world we were meant to make. And it's good news that God has actually gotten his fingers dirty in the world and he wants to make it right. It's really good news. And evangelism isn't just convincing people how bad they are so you can then tell them God loves them and forgives them. Above all, it's just telling people what God has done for you. We're witnesses. 
Has God done anything good for anybody here? Can I get a witness? As I prayed for you and for this message, I just had this sense that there's lots of folks in the church that are, in this church, that are highly responsible people, want to do right, want to do good, want to make a difference, want to live up to what God wants. And sometimes there's a kind of an effort that gets put into that that robs maybe some of us here of the joy and of the perspective of what God has done for us. And sometimes we reduce what God has done for us to a formula or a doctrine rather than just to the good news and the joy. You know, if there are probably people here who are on the way and wondering if they ought to follow Jesus, but there's also a lot of people here who do love Jesus. And you do so for a reason. You do so because God has been good in your life in some way. And evangelism, witness, is just telling people, what has God done for me? And inviting people to respond to what God wants to do for them. So I get to talk about witness, and I wanted to start by sort of just like defining it in a way that would encourage us. And actually, maybe if we hear the word witness, the word evangelism, say, I want that. That sounds awesome. I also want to clear a little bit of underbrush. My main message, my main topic that Pastor Peter asked me to talk about is the Holy Spirit and evangelism or the Holy Spirit and witness. I'm going to get there, but I just want to clear a little bit of underbrush because what I find is that there are certain inadequacies people feel when they think about witness. One of them is people say, you know, I don't have many friends who don't know Jesus, and I don't get many opportunities to talk with those friends. So, Rick, you can go on and on about how great that would be, but I just don't have many people I can talk to about it. I just don't have that many friends. Spend a lot of time in Christian circles. And all I want to say about that is, As we've worked with people, I work with uh, Beth Severson, and she's going to read the scripture in a minute, or a scripture in in a minute. And I work with her, and we work with pastors and churches around the country, helping churches come alive to witness and reach out and be loving and invite people into God's love. And what we found as we traveled the country and worked with pastors and churches is that people don't lack opportunities for witness. They lack support. You actually have friends, family members, people you run into at Starbucks. You have a lot of people in your life that you could share more with about what God has done for you. But we often don't take the opportunities. And we often don't take the opportunities because that part of who we are just doesn't get fed, supported. We're not that accountable to anybody about it. Do you know what we've found, Beth and I, as we've worked with pastors? A lot of pastors don't have time to reach out to their neighbor, neighbors. And what we've found is if they can get together with somebody else once a month and encourage each other to reach out, they have lots of opportunities. 
but they don't know it because they don't get much support to take the opportunities. So that's I don't have friends. I'm glad I forgot that I have, you know, a few of these on PowerPoints. And so another barrier is I don't know enough. I don't know what I'll say. I don't know how to answer people's questions. Dear friends, people mostly don't care whether you could answer their questions. They don't care how much you know. They care how much you care. I'm going to unpack that a little more in my message. But that's a false trail. That's a way to make ourselves feel adequate that's unnecessary. A third issue we have is people are not interested. They're turned off. Uh, you know, they, they're turned off by the church. They've been burned over by, by the gospel. Here's some fun stats. We, did, we interviewed 2,000 unchurched people around the country. Every part of the country, every place. Well, and we found a couple of things that are really interested in terms of this people aren't interested issue. And So let's, let's look at a couple of these. Uh, so one of them, if you could flip it. Uh, we, un, unchurched people, we did 2,000. It's people who haven't been to church in the last six months, except for maybe a wedding or a funeral. And if you can, you can sort of see this slide. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but on this slide, uh, it, first I had a slide that had, it's 150 million adults. That's how many unchurched. And this slide says, yeah, 150 million adults. It's a country. If you took all the unchurched and made it a country, it would be bigger than Russia or Mexico or Japan. That's the size of the unchurched in our nation. And we asked these unchurched people a ton of questions, and I'm just going to mention a few. One is, my Christian friends talk about their faith too much. How many people who are unchurched do you think would agree with that? Turns out, one out of five think that you and I talk about our faith too much. And it turns out that nearly three quarters don't agree with that. We don't talk about our faith too much. Three out of four of your unchurched friends and family members don't think you talk about it too much. And a second question we ask is, if a friend of mine really values their faith, I don't mind them talking about it. Over three-quarters of the people agreed with that, and only one out of five again disagreed. One out of five people don't really want to hear about your faith. Four out of five do of the unchurched. And you know what? You find out pretty quick who the one out of five are. And guess what? You don't just talk about your faith right away. You might even want to ask them, why don't you want? You know, why is that an uncomfortable su suggestion? What have you experienced? Have you experienced people that were a little pushy about it? Well, I don't want to be that. If you ever want to talk about that, then I'll let you bring it up. And then go talk to the four out of five who do. Right? And even more encouraging is how effective each of the following methods would be in getting the unchurched to visit a congregation. Turns out that 55% of the unchurched tell us on the next slide, 55% of the unchurched tell us that if a family member invites me to a church, that would be either very effective or effective in getting me to want to come. 55%, more than one out of two. And 50% say that's true if a friend invites me. 
Now that's not going to be your batting average if you go around inviting people. Because it turns out there's steps people take and it's not easy to get over some of the barriers of getting there. But it turns out that's the measure of their openness. One out of two of your unchurched friends, if you invite them, would say that'd be effective in getting me to go to church. Sharing faith is much more welcome than we think. Well, so that's an issue that we feel. That's the next slide. Then I think sometimes we feel that people will be offended We're afraid of creating awkwardness in relationships. We're afraid of offending people if we share about our faith and what's really important to us. That's what we're afraid of. Well, let's take a look at one or two more slides there. Uh, One of them is that it turns out that when you ask the unchurched what they think of the church, 42% think the church is good for society and only 6% think the church is harmful to society. Now that's interesting. One out of 20. They're a pretty loud one out of 20. They often write stuff in the papers. They put out books. Folks make stories on them. The news covers them. It's a pretty loud one out of 20. But... Look at the persecution factor for people who want to share faith. And that should be on the next slide. Turns out 30% of your unchurched friends admire your faith. 20% think you talk about it too much. That's the one out of five. And 1.5% of your unchurched friends give you a hard time about your faith. There's a great measure of the persecution factor in the U.S. Wow. There are places where sharing your faith gets a little bit of a stronger response than a little bit of social awkwardness. My boss has a phrase that he says to people when they're afraid of offending folks. And I, don't, I never like offending people. And sometimes, you know, what you can say about Jesus or, you know, can offend people. And that's... That happens, but here's the factor, 1.5%. So my boss likes to say to people that have a problem with the social awkwardness, he likes to say, suck it up, buttercup. It's not very horrifying. Take a risk. Anyway, that's him. I would never say that. People are more curious about God than we think. Well, let me deal with two last ones, and that's what I'm going to talk about. One is, a lot of people feel like, I don't have that gift. I'm not good at that. I'm good at helping people grow. I'm good at serving. I'm good at compassion. But I'm not very good at witness, so I'll let other people do that. I'll do the compassion. I'll do the praying. I'll do the helping people grow. This is related to another issue that people raise, and it's, I feel inadequate. I don't feel like I'm able to do this. I don't feel good at this. That's what I want to talk about today. Because in reality, there's two two things I kind of want to uh, say there. In reality, 
we are inadequate. That's okay. Because who's adequate? God is. The Holy Spirit is. And, interestingly, when you have the Holy Spirit, if you know God, if you know Jesus, I know some of you are on the journey, checking that out, but if you've committed your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And it turns out, the Holy Spirit is fabulous at witness. Turns out the Holy Spirit doesn't like anything better than to point to Jesus. It turns out the Holy Spirit is full of power and energy and longing and desire and capability. And it turns out you have the Holy Spirit. And it's actually about all you need. Because the Holy Spirit is so good at it that if you'll just kind of trail along and do the best you can, it's going to work out pretty well. Interesting. That comes out in passages like Matthew 28 and John 20. Jesus, at the end of his life, he says, As the Father sends me, so I send you. Receive now the Holy Spirit. And then he says in Matthew 28, As you're going, make disciples, make followers, baptizing and teaching them. And then he says, And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. What's the key to us being able to make disciples? What's the key to us being able to pour into people? What's the key to us being able to have babies, spiritual babies? The key is, lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. It's not what we do. It's not what, how we're gifted. It's who we know. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's all that it needs to be. The Holy Spirit is really, really good at being a witness to Jesus. And it's actually the thing the Holy Spirit loves the most to do. And the Holy Spirit's in you. And is kind of waiting for you to say, hey, I want to be part of that. So Beth is going to read a passage, and we're going to break that down into some simple things. And I'm actually going to, so that was clearing the underbrush. That was just getting ready for it, giving you the theme. That's going to be longer than the sermon. Isn't that cool? The rest of it. So Beth. The reading of God's word. John 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Amen. I love this story. It's kind of a fun one. A guy is paralyzed uh, by a pool for 38 years. And Jesus kind of picks him out off the ground, asks a few questions about him, comes up and asks the man a couple of questions, a question, do you want to get well? And the man says, well, basically I've tried, but there's no one to help me. And then Jesus kind of bypasses the pool. It was a pool where every once in a while it would uh, get turbulent. And people believed an angel was stirring it. And the first one in the pool then would, would be healed. And Jesus bypasses the pool and he just orders the man to get up and take his mat and walk. And I, I don't know what that scene was like. It's got to have been kind of wild because the, the man uh, did it. You know, he got up and walked after 38 years of laying there. I don't know, his muscles were, must have been atrophied. And who, who knows what that was like for him. I, you know, I'm sure when he first heard the command to get up, and walk. He must have been shocked. Um, and, uh, but he does. And then, and then the Jewish leaders, uh, like too often religious people do, were more concerned about the rules than the life that had just happened. And so they, right, they kind of they say, hey, you know, what are you doing carrying your pallet on the Sabbath? The guy's been laying there for 38 years. And he's walking around and religious leaders notice the rule that's been broken. Uh, which is that 6% of the people who hate the church, right? That's, that's kind of what they're thinking about. And uh, so the religious leaders do that, and, and they, uh, uh, you know, ask him who did it, and he says, I don't even know. And then Jesus comes up and finds him later and says, hey, it's me. And, uh, and then he says kind of an interesting thing, stop sinning. And we don't know exactly what he meant, but uh, uh, he says, stop sinning so nothing worse happens to you. You've been healed you know, live in the, in the good healing. So when he tells the people it's Jesus, they come and find him, they stop him and, and kind of uh, quiz him and say, why are you doing that on the Sabbath? And, and Jesus basically says, uh, you know, here's the secret of what I do. I watch what the Father's doing and I jump in. 
and I join along with, and I collaborate. And I can't do anything myself. I just watch to see the clues of what the Father's doing. And if I can see the clues of what the Father's doing and get on board that and ride that wave, then lots of cool stuff happens. I don't know if he used the word cool or whatever. But anyway, he basically says, I do what I see the Father doing. That's the secret of his ministry. Some people think Jesus did the things he did because he was God. But actually, that biblically is not a good way to understand Jesus. Uh, In Philippians 2, it tells us that he emptied himself of all the God-like characters, all the knowledge, absolute power, in order to become truly human. And he lived in a way with us and did nothing beyond what humans can do. Now, most of us don't, haven't often gone up to somebody lying for 38 years on a mat and tell them to get up and they walk away. But Jesus basically says, if you're filled with the Spirit, that's possible. And what's more, what he does shows us a way to live that, that many of us could live like. Maybe not commonly seeing people get off pallets. In some parts of the world, they believe that stuff more. And it happens more. But we could keep a finer tune to what God is doing and join it. I think evangelism is maybe best or witnesses best understood as trying to look for the the clues of where God's at work and jumping on board and collaborating with it. And that actually talking is not the key skill you need for evangelism. And knowing answers is not the key skill. The key skill turns out to be being sensitive to how God's at work and the people around you. And that key skill is often, like with Jesus it was, it's seeing that in people who are at a point where they feel a need. They they have a brokenness. They're open. They want God to work in their life. They may be, you know, way, who knows where and how they think about God, but they have a need And they're open. And Jesus went around looking for those people. And then he tried to see what the Father was doing in them. And then he tried to work with it. That was really simply his philosophy of ministry. Wasn't complicated. It it didn't take a master's of divinity. Jesus never got one of those, right? It didn't take a lot of training in how to answer tough questions. It just took a willingness to try to look for clues where hurting people might be asking some questions and God might be at work. That's all it is. And we run into people like that in our family and with our friends and at Starbucks and right outside and in the street as we walk by and with colleagues. We run into that all the time. There's lots of opportunities to see people that have a need to try to get clues to what God might be doing and to collaborate, to encourage them to take another step. That's the life that Jesus lived, that was actually the life he taught his disciples to live. That whole thing of evangelism or witness is not my gift. Listen, if you have the Holy Spirit and you're a disciple, sure, it's part of who you are and what you do. That doesn't mean it's where you focus, but it's part of who you are. It will happen as you're open. And as you get support for it, it will happen.
And Jesus shows us how. So I just want to mention three things Jesus did. Number one, he asked the guy a question. Number two, clearly he asked God a question. And number three, he spoke and prayed and and ministered to the man in a way that fit what God was doing. So let me break that down into a really simple thing. Ask questions of people about God. Ask questions of God about people. And then pray for and with people. And we'll make it that simple today. And the context is seeing people with a need. That's the context. You're going to go out to eat for lunch. And if there's an awareness of maybe a waitress or somebody else that you see that might have a need, there's an opportunity. You'll be with family members today. And you might see someone who looks a little down. And if that's true, there's an opportunity. And I would suggest Jesus' way of responding to the opportunity is a great way to respond. Ask them a question. Ask God a question about them. And then pray for and with them. For or with them. So it's very interesting. Offering to pray for people is a universal almost, unless you make it a cliche or a forcible thing or have an agenda to it. Just letting somebody know you'll pray for them is almost a universal Uh, language of a positive thing for people in our culture. And one of the fascinating things is even the people in our culture who say, I don't have anything to do with church, I'm nothing in particular, one out of three of the nuns, the people who say that, one out of three pray every day. Prayer can be kind of a universal language and a universal language of love. So, Jesus asked the guy a question. He asked about the guy, and then he said, do you want to get well? We ask good questions. Let me suggest to you, witness is more about asking questions than about saying things. Here's my percentage. Witness is about 90% asking questions, 9% talking about what God has done for you and inviting people into it, and about 1% letting them know how it works. And I think the 1% there is maybe even high. Because often people, and many of us in this room, responded to God not really understanding how it works. But we just responded to wanting it. Wanting the life God had to offer. The forgiveness God had to offer. The, 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 the change. Now, I made those statistics up. When I give you research, that's not made up. That's 2,000 people. I'm telling you, really, this many people out of 2,000 said this. I'm making the 90%, 9%, 1% up, but I think it's a pretty good percentage. Think about it. I remember I I wrote my first book at uh, Einstein Bagels. And I asked the manager, Kara, Kara, can I write a book here? And Kara said... uh, Sure. And I said, well, wait a minute. I want you to understand what I'm asking. I am going to come in here every morning at 7.30 in the morning. I am going to buy one cup of chocolate macadamia nut coffee and one bagel, cinnamon sugar with strawberry cream cheese. You could even have it ready for me if you want. And I will take that and I will sit in that chair over there. I'm going to plug in my computer. I'm going to write for five hours, have 15 cups of coffee, and that's all I'm going to have. And then I'm going to go home. Kara thought about it for a minute. And finally she said, okay, if you thank me in your book. 
So I did. And I brought the book when it was done. It was a book called Evangelism Outside the Box, New Ways of Helping People Experience the Good News. I've been at this kind of trying to get the good news out of our boxes for a long time. And I read Kara to Kara, my manager of Einstein Bagels, who let me drink my, uh, you could read this, drink my uh, chocolate macadamia uh, nut coffee and uh, eat my cinnamon sugar bagel for hours on end. Thank you. Kara reads that. She goes, I'm famous. I said, Han, I am not famous. So you are definitely not famous, but I really appreciate what you did. Well, Kara took that book, gave it to her manager, who gave it to his manager, who gave it to the president of Einstein Bagels. He brought it to the national manager's meeting of Einstein Bagels, opens the book, reads the title, Evangelism Outside the Box. He's not Jewish, by the way. Evangelism Outside the Box. Then he said, I want to read you something to Kara. He read the acknowledgement, and he took the book and waved it at everybody, and he said, now that's customer service. I want you to do that. And so as a way to reinforce it, I'm going to buy a copy of this book for every one of you. Turned out I wasn't famous, but she was. (laughs) Very cool. So, but that became my community. So I sat there and I met Sam, my friend. Now, I have lots of experiences like this, uh, but Sam is just a dramatic one. So it's a ways back, so I like to tell about Sam. One time I'm going through the thing and I get my chocolate macadamia nut coffee and I'm stepping toward my place where I plug in my computer and Sam's walking behind me and we've had a few conversations and Sam says, Rick, wait a minute. I want to know, are you one of those kind of guys that thinks you're right and everybody else is wrong and that you have the only way to God? And he's pointing his finger like that. And five people in Einstein Bagels, my community, are listening. What would you say? I have some friends who say, I'd just turn around and go, yes! And I'd say, I'm glad you're bold. I'm glad I didn't do that. I did what Jesus did whenever, like about half the time he was asked a question. That is a pretty good stat. About half the time he was asked a question. Do you know how he answered? With a question. I saw somebody who said, Jesus was asked 250 questions, and he only answered three of them. And the other 250, he answered with a question. That's a bad stat. That's not true. But about, at least about half the time, he answered questions with questions. So what do you think I did with Sam? I asked him a question. I got lucky that time. I said, why do you ask? But that's what Jesus did. Do you want to get well? When Jesus was a witness, he started with a question. When Jesus was asked questions, he started with a question. It's not that we know how to answer all the questions. It's that we know how to ask a good question. Now, you know, sometimes people can feel like we're dodging it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about finding out where people are really coming from and asking a question. So Sam, I asked him, and it turned out, he said, my cousin comes with his Bible every week, and he tells me how sinful I am, and that I'm headed for hell, and that because I drink, my life is shot, and if I don't turn around, yeah, I'm just, you know, toast. 
Turns out, Sam didn't really care whether I thought Jesus was the only way. Turned out, what Sam wanted to know was what? Do you care? How are you going to treat me if I don't agree with you? Witness, if you can ask a few questions and find out where God is at work, it's really, really fun. Questions like, what's your religious background and what does it mean to you? Questions like, hey, do you, have you ever prayed and what, what does that mean to you? Questions like, what do you think of the spiritual side of life? Do you think that's there? And I found it's really easy to ask those questions because I just live my faith and I share my life and it comes up. And when it comes up, it's really natural to ask people how they look at that kind of thing. It's not rocket science. It's pretty easy to ask questions. Second thing, then, ask people good questions. Could we all do that? And then second thing, ask God good questions about people. That's easier than we make it, too. If you see a hurting person, what do you think God might want to say to them? Do you think he might want to encourage them? Lift up their heart. Tell them he loves them. And listening to God is just as you look at people that are struggling, you ask God, what would you be saying to them? And often something hits you. Uh, Beth and I have taken students to a thing called Burning Man, and this is where I saw it a lot. Nice dramatic stories there, but uh, do how many of you know what Burning Man is? Good. You know, if I'd asked you five years ago, not many would, uh, but Burning Man is an arts and self-expression festival in the desert of Nevada. 70,000 people come, and uh, people think it's a big party, and here reports of nudity and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And some of those are kind of exaggerated. I mean, it's actually a place where there's a lot of spiritual seekers. And it's really fun to walk around there and just try to see what God might be doing in hurting people. I walked up to a camp called the Science of Churchology. Try to put that together in your head. The Science of Churchology. Guy with a white collar, had every kind of religious symbol you can imagine. I said, hey, how you doing? I'm Rick. He said, I'm Messiah. I said, you're Messiah. Okay. Are you playing with me? And he said, no, well, yes, well. And we had a talk and he invited me to communion, which turned out to be popping a bud. That was communion for him. But All I had to do was sort of sit there and look for the evidence, right, of where God is at work. And a woman came up, and her face was really sad, and she was taking the offering, you know, for the science of churchology in a milk bottle. And I just had this sense, this woman's hurting, and I think her heart's been broken, and I just just sense God saying, tell her that I love her and I want to heal her broken heart. So I just said, hey, I just feel like, you you know, your heart is really hurting and God wants you to know that he loves you and wants to heal your broken heart. And she started weeping because it turns out her boyfriend had trashed her the night before and she had a heart shattered in pieces and she was really hurting and 
She said, I came a thousand miles just to hear that. So often, I want to know the clever thought, the great argument, the wonderful answer. And what I'm finding more and more is people just want to encounter God. The real God who has real love and a real word for their lives. And so then we just did the last thing. I said, can I pray for you? And it was so easy at that point because there was trust. Yeah, I don't walk around saying to everybody, oh, can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Oh, waitress, can I pray for you? I look for some trust. I look for some hurt. And I look for a way to encourage. And then I will ask in an appropriate kind of way. But then I do. And I find praying with people who are on the way to finding Jesus is one of the most powerful ways to encourage love and help them take a step toward Jesus that there is. And I prayed for her and she met God. I think that's how Jesus pursued witness. He asked good questions of people about God. He asked good questions of God about people. And then he prayed for them, and whenever he could, he prayed with them. And I want to encourage you as you go out today, you have opportunities. You have the Holy Spirit that is all you need. And you can look for a hurting person today and encourage them about God's love. And maybe even pray for them. Amen.